Well, what a way to start off a summer sermon series, huh? Switch things up a little bit. So, uh, hope you're on your toes. Um, so, well, as you can see, our regular order of service is a little bit different this morning. Uh, our text this morning is going to come from the book of Colossians. It's going to be Colossians 3.16. So, if you want to go ahead and start making your way there. So, I began to prepare for this message and focused in on what the text was saying. I could see that we could make immediate application of the text, but that it would require us to switch things around a little bit, so that's exactly what we've done. Uh, We've adjusted the order of service this morning so that we can um, spend some time, and after we spend some time packing Colossians 3.16, we can make immediate application of it, which I'm looking forward to. So Colossians 3.16, hear the word of the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The phrase psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is also seen in Ephesians 19, where Paul writes that we are to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Although there is some parallel focus with this, uh, we're going to focus primarily on Uh, Colossians 3.16. But before we do that, uh, please join me in asking for the Lord's blessing upon our time together in his word. Hmm. Father, what a gift to us you are, and Father, what a gift to us your word is to us. Lord, where we read about and learn about who you are, your character, your nature, your goodness, And Lord, how we even see our condition and what has happened to us and our need of you. Lord, we learn of the covenants throughout Scripture. And Lord, the covenant that you have made to redeem us through your Son. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for how your word speaks of our healing and our deliverance. That it is life-giving, that is eternal. Lord, we pray that you would give us a a deeper desire and hunger for your word, that it would dwell in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Lord, with thanksgiving in our hearts to you. So, Father, just be with us as we unpack this verse, and Lord, um, just be attentive to what you have to say to us this morning. Be glorified and honored in this place, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to go through this passage together. Um, Although this is just one verse, there's a lot that can be drawn from it that applies to how we live out our Christian walk of faith. But before we begin to dive into the verse this morning, I need to let you know that that a good portion of the material this morning come from several primary resources that have been very helpful to me um, uh, in my journey of growing in worship and theology and then also looking at this verse. And uh, two resources by Bob Coughlin, Worship Matters and True Worshippers, and then another small book by Keith and Kristen Getty titled Sing, which I highly recommend these resources to you. They have been uh, very formative for me in my journey of growing in theology of worship. Um, So if I were to ask you, 
What are some things that you tend to think about or dwell upon on a daily basis? What would some of those things be? For some of us, it might be finances or parenting challenges. For others, it might be a big project at work. Uh, For some of us, it might be marital conflict or a big transition that's about to take place. Whatever it might be, the point is that we tend to think a lot about the things that are important to us or dwell upon current areas of tensions in our life. In our passage this morning, Paul commands us to dwell upon something that is life-giving and eternal. The command given us is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In looking at several commentaries on this verse, I found that there are several thoughts as to what Paul meant by the word of Christ in which he's commanding us to dwell upon richly. One thought is that the word of Christ refers to all of Scripture, calling to mind 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Another more focused thought is that the word of Christ is the summary of the redemptive work of Jesus and parallels the previously used expression, the word of truth, the gospel that's found in Colossians 1.5. Both of these thoughts help us as we should be dwelling upon what God has done for us in and through Jesus, his redemptive work for us and the gospel that brings salvation that is found in all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There are many connections that can be made from scripture to which the word of God is linked. For instance, we see from Psalm 33.6 that the word of God is linked to creation. Psalm 33.6 tells us, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. God spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. Psalm 33.6 very well may be where Paul gets the metaphor of Scripture being the product of God's creative breath, ...that he wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is a product of his creative breath. And so God brought everything into existence by his word. And so just as God generated creation by his creative breath... ...he generated the Bible, his creative breath. And so we see that God's word is linked with creation. Not only is God's word linked to creation... ...God's word is linked to his healing... And deliverance. Psalm 107, verse 20 says, He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. God's word is linked with His revelation. All throughout Scripture, we see that the Lord makes known His word. We see that the word of the Lord appeared to Abram, to Moses, to Joshua, to Samuel, to Jeremiah, and the list goes on and on. God's word is linked with His revelation. God's word is linked with his activity, Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not, re- not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Amen. Consider how the scripture speaks about itself in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So we need to position ourselves to say, this is the most valuable thing 
in all the world to me. And this is the sweetest thing in the world because it gives us God. God doesn't just give us ideas about himself. He gives himself to us. That's what he does through his word. In fact, we see that in John 1.1. Jesus himself is called the word. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was his own self-expression. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, his own self-disclosure. Thus, Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It is impossible to know God, to see him act, to hear him, to express his care, his rule, apart from his word. It's through God's word that we know him. It's through God's word that we encounter him. So some application questions for you and I to consider related to letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly would be, do I treasure God's word by intentionally setting aside time to read it on a daily basis? If that's not the case for you, I encourage you to start by setting aside 15 minutes at some point in your day. It's something, if it's something that you treasure, then you will read it and spend time in it. You will see it as food for your soul, as the uh, passage reference uh, being gold, being sweeter than honey. So another question would be, am I hiding or storing up God's word by memorizing it? Don't just have a vague knowledge of what God's word says. Begin to memorize it with both verse and reference. There are many different Bible apps that you can use for this. One that I have found that's helpful to me is one by Desiring God uh, with fighter verses. Um, it's an app where you can, um, it gives you a passage or a verse to memorize over the week. And it help, uh, it's got, part of the function is that you helps you listen to the verse. You can sing the verse. You can set the verse as a lock screen and so much more. But there's a lot of different varieties or means of doing that. And in preparing for this message, it's been a challenge for me to start doing that more consistently. So find someone to hold you accountable and to help you in, holding, in hiding God's word in your heart, as Psalm 119.11 encourages us to do. Another way to let the word of God dwell in us richly is hearing it preached. So another question for us is, am I being faithful to submitting myself to the teaching and preaching of God's word on a weekly basis? I am so thankful for Justin and for Landon and, um, and for their faithfulness to preach God's word to us throughout the year and for the occasional times that we get to hear from Jagar and Ken. What a blessed church we are. So am I taking full advantage of what God has blessed me with? I'm, am I letting his word dwell in me richly? Notice that Colossians 3.16 also tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And what it does, it equips, what it equips us for. It equips us to be able to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. As we allow the gospel to dwell in us richly, we uphold Christ as a source of all wisdom, Colossians 2.3. And his truth serves as a substance of our teaching and admonishing one another. We aren't to just let the word of Christ dwell in us for our own individual good. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another. Our spiritual growth and maturity as we study and dwell richly on God's word not only impacts us personally, but should have an effect on the church, the body of Christ. And why do we teach and admonish one another? We do this to edify one another. 
To edify means to build up. As Bob, Bob Coughlin points out, edification can take the place through a variety of means, but the result is always the same. People are strengthened, encouraged, and helped. When we gather as the church to meet with God, Paul says that we are to keep each other in view, teaching and admonishing one another. That is what actually glorifies God. And it's why the words Paul uses to describe the purpose of our meetings isn't worship, but edification. Worship and edification are two sides of the same coin. When we serve others for their good by teaching and admonishing, we're bringing glory to God. So Paul commands us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can edify one another through teaching and admonishing one another. And how are we to teach and admonish one another? Well, one of the ways scripture tells us how to do this, and specifically from our text this morning, is by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Now, to be clear, singing is not the only way which we teach or admonish, and it's certainly not the only way in which we worship. In fact, all of life is worship. We are always worshiping someone or something. The question is, who or what are we worshiping? Worship is fundamentally, before anything else, a response to God's revelation of himself. That is why the word of God is so important. True worship is an appropriate response to God and who he has revealed himself to be. Therefore, we can't worship without God's word because worship is precisely a response to that very word. Our text today points out that one of the ways in which we respond to his word, dwelling in us virtually, is by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God for the edification of one another. So when we exalt God through our expressions of praise, prayer, and thanks, we're building up those around us by what we're teaching and admonishing in and through our songs. What we sing is fundamental to what we teach and learn. I will speak more about what we sing later on in the message. Singing is also a very effective tool for memorizing and remembering things. Dr. Oliver Sacks has studied the effect of music on the brain for many years and writes, every culture has songs and rhymes to, keep ch to help children learn the alphabet, numbers, and other lists. Even as adults, we're limited, amen, by our ability to memorize series and hold them in mind unless we use mnemonic devices or patterns. And the most powerful of these devices or rhyme is our rhyme, meter, and song. Alzheimer's patients often fail to recognize their spouse or children, but join in enthusiastically when they hear a song they've learned as a teenager. God himself uses music as a means to help people remember his word. In Deuteronomy 31, 21, as the Israelites, Israelites were about to enter the promised land, God told Moses to teach them a song so that when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall comfort them as a witness. For it will live unforgotten in their mouths of their offerings. We remember what we sing. So now we come to the part of the verse that commands us to sing. Just as we're told to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and to teach and admonish one another, so we're encouraged to sing with the saints. Repeatedly and throughout scripture, we're commanded to be a singing people. There are more than 400 references to singing in the Bible and at least 50 direct commands. We're not to disregard the command because we don't like the music 
or don't like who's leading or are just not in the mood to sing. The command in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 through 25 is very clear. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declaring his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. Scripture not only commands us to sing, it also gives us direction with where how, and what we sing. These will be the main points as it relates to singing. Where we sing, how we sing, and what we sing. So where we sing. One of the direct commands about singing is found in Psalm 149, verse 1, which tells us, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. We see from this command that we are not just to sing to ourselves or by ourselves, as uh, in the shower by ourselves or in the car by yourself, but out loud as part of the assembly of the saints, that is, in the company of other believers, with the church. And notice that this is not a suggestion, but a clear directive, which tells us both who we are to sing to as well as where we are to sing. We are commanded to sing to the Lord and to sing with the assembly of the saints. This means that one of the primary parts of our worship life should be regularly singing with other believers in the context of the local church the assembly of the saints. While singing involves me, it's never just about me. While we make melody to the Lord in our hearts, we're also addressing one another in song, Ephesians 5.19. There's a vertical as well as a horizontal focus, horizontal, horizontal focus to our singing. We're not to think of our singing together as just the singing, something we can skip over or arrive late for, but something we are to take seriously, to value to set aside time for. I love what Keith Getty writes in his book, Sing, where he says, as we sing to God about God together with the people of God, we reflect the truth that we were designed for community, both with God and with each other. So many of the instructions given to God's people are to be worked out in community together. Strong, heartfelt congregational singing is a striking expression of this, of the Holy Spirit at work among us and through us as we sing of the very things we share in as Christ's people. As I pointed out earlier, Colossians 3.16 raises a question as to what we are dwelling on. This has an impact on our singing in worship together. It's not uncommon to walk into a worship meeting distracted and weighed down by anxiety, relational struggles, discouragement, or condemnation. As we sing with the church, we're often, we often let biblical truths enter our ears and pass through our lips with no effect. In so doing, we don't allow Christ-centered, biblically faithful songs to encourage and equip us for our common battles and temptations. So when you sing, look around. Encourage others with what you're singing and expect to be encouraged by the fact that there are others singing with you and to you. Use the lyrics of the songs to encourage one another. So here are some examples of how we can do this. We just sang the lyrics, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. So in singing that, we're reminded that we were lost, not looking for God. In fact, we were strangers. 
that he sought us out and rescued us by pouring out his blood for you and for me. Often when we're singing, I'm reminded of these truths, and you'll see me occasionally try to look up from the piano to be able to look at you because as I'm being encouraged, I too want to encourage you in that. And so I encourage us to do that as a body as we sing. So when we sing the words, what air my God ordains is right, we're reminding each other of the sovereignty of God that no matter what we're facing, we know that God loves us and is with us, that we can trust him. With the lyrics, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. We're admonishing one another not to live in condemnation for sins that the Savior has already paid for. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise instructs us in the futility of living for fleeting wealth or the applause of others. Singing is meant to be an educational event for our edification. Our times of worship together provide a time where all of our individual stories come together. We are reminded that we are not alone. We are members of a multi-generational, a multi-ethnic, a multi-everything family. We are reminded that we are not self-sufficient, for we need a Savior. We are reminded that we need not despair, for we have His Spirit within us. We are reminded that we are not the center of the universe, but just one voice and heart among a great worldwide throng of people praising the one who was and who is and who is to come. And we remind each other of all, that, all of this as we sing together. Singing also helps us express our unity with the church. Paul uses harmony, the term harmony, three times in his letters. In Romans 12, 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And Colossians 3, 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In each of these verses, Paul uses the word harmony, not referencing music. And as a music person, I love harmony. I love it when we sing in harmony. But when Paul's using it here, he's not referencing music. He's describing relational unity. While gathering together, in an, in, while gathering together is in itself an expression of our unity in Christ, singing together is an opportunity to deepen that expression and experience. Better than simply reciting or shouting words in unison, singing enables us to spend extended periods of time communicating the same thoughts, passions, and intentions to each other. And singing, if singing together is meant to express our unity in Christ, that means every voice matters, including yours. Personal headphones might be a universal accessory, but they're out of place on Sunday mornings. In the church, God calls us not simply to listen to others sing, but to sing ourselves. No one else might notice, but God hears every voice and heart distinctly. Knowing that singing is meant to express our unity in the gospel doesn't mean we'll always like the songs we sing. Paul's reference to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs most likely indicates that songs of the church will be varied. One style of music will never fully capture the glories of God, or our appropriate response to him. Although conflicts over music styles in the church didn't exist in Paul's time, he wisely encouraged the Colossians in the context of singing to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you were called in one body, Colossians 3.15. We sing as one body for God's glory. The benefits of gathering with a church call for a response. Bob Coughlin provides some helpful guidance here. He writes, If you really think meeting with God's people is important and valuable, what difference will it make in your participation? And he provides six ways for us to consider. So number one, show up on time. You'll want to arrive before the service starts and stay late because knowing, be, uh, knowing that there are ample opportunities for God to work both before the service and after the service. Number two, pray. Pray that you will hear and encounter God through his people. Pray also that your heart will be ready both to serve and to receive from others. Third, be prepared. Justin sends out the sermon text for Sunday every Thursday in his weekly email. This is an excellent opportunity to read and meditate on the passage beforehand. You can even prepare by singing or praying in the car on your way to church, talking about what you're looking forward to or thinking about what what people will be here. Fourth, seek to receive. If you don't come to receive, you won't have anything to give. In acknowledging that we need to receive, we are also acknowledging that we have no resources in ourselves. God has grace, strength, faith, hope, and love he's eager to impart to us through the gospel every week in the power of his spirit. So we come with open hands and open hearts. Fifth, seek to serve. The gathered church was never meant to be a spectator event. With every event, with a few, excuse me, with a few people in the spotlight, Let me back up. The gathered church was never meant to be a spectator event with a few people in the spotlight and everyone else looking on. We're the body of Christ being built up as each part is working properly. Sixth, seek to respond. We're missing the point of gathering together if if we see the gathering as an end in itself. The songs we sing, the sermons we hear, the fellowship we share are all meant to prepare us for living each day for the glory of God as true worshipers. Together, if we meet as God intended to sing, pray, read, hear, and obey his word, to proclaim his praises in song, and to rehearse, revel in, and respond to the gospel, then we'll be glorifying God in a greater way than if we did those things alone. How we sing. Colossians 3.16 also speaks to how we sing. The disposition of our hearts is not to be begrudging. I sing because I have to. But rather, as Colossians 3.16 says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thankfulness is more than saying or singing the words with your lips. In fact, Keith Getty says, you're not singing Christianly if if you're singing only with your lips. The root of true thankfulness is the gratitude in our hearts for the unmerited benefits of God's goodness in our lives. Yet he goes on to state, Deeply felt thankfulness produces sound from our voices that is robust and enthusiastic. What is happening when we sing is about so much more than the audible sound we create. How we sing reveals how we think and feel about something. Our individual personalities join up to make a collective personality, and our individual grateful hearts come together as the church. So as we obey the command to sing, we are or should be unleashing a congregational sound of conviction, whether there are dozens of us or thousands of us. 
If we aren't, our children or visitors looking on have every right to wonder if what we are singing is truly important to us. In this sense, our singing betrays the truth about us, for better or for worse. But be encouraged, Miller Heights. Your singing is an amazing testimony of encouragement that God is at work and does, in fact, unleash a congregational sound of conviction. Uh, I have to say, of the churches that I've been involved with, Miller Heights is very well known for just how well you sing. It's such an encouragement to hear you sing. It's a joy and a sing. It's a joy to sing and worship with you. Um, Uh, oftentimes, congregations derive their volume from what's happening up on stage. I have to say that's the opposite with what happens here. Oftentimes, you are way louder than what's happening up here, which is glorious to be a part of. Singing also gives voice to the heart that deeply knows the gospel of grace. It's the overflow of a heart captivated by the gospel. In as many voices that join together to sing, there are as many hearts that are called to know Jesus Christ as Lord and as our exalted Savior. From that place, there is genuine and rich overflow of praise. This should reassure us. No matter how you are feeling, nor how good or bad a week you've had, you can lift your eyes to Jesus with relief, for he washed you clean, and so you can sing wherever your life is at and wherever you are, whatever you're facing. For some, the desire to sing may be affected by the concern for what others might be thinking about how you sound. You don't have to be a distraction, but it brings more glory to God when you sing enthusiastically because of his greatness than when you hold back because you fear what the person next to you thinks. The Psalms are filled with references to singing with a joyful noise. Psalm 98 verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98 6, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Psalm 95 verses 1 and 2, O come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Notice these verses say a joyful noise, not a perfect harmonious sound. The Lord looks at the heart, and it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, or in this occasion, sings. So if you're distracted by the people around you, it can be helpful to think that Christ perfects both your offering as well as theirs. Imagine what our voices sound like to our holy God. Bob Coughlin provides a helpful illustration here. It's like a three-year-old bringing a stick figure drawing to their daddy. See, daddy, I made this for you. The father receives it joyfully, not because of the quality, but because of the heart behind it. In our case, the father accepts what we bring not only on the basis of our sincere hearts, but because Jesus has made our worship acceptable through his once-for-all perfect offering. I like what Keith Getty says in his book, Sing. Your voice may not be of professional standard, but it is of confessional standard. Your voice, along with all the other voices in our gatherings, have been redeemed by the Savior. As we sing, he presents our song to the Father for his glory and our joy. The critical question is not, do I have a voice, but do I have a song? And if you're a true worshiper, forgiven and reconciled to God through the atoning work of Christ, the answer is a resounding yes. The song we have is the song of the redeemed for the great redeemer. 
This song didn't originate with us. We didn't create this song. We can't add to it or change it or improve upon it. It's a song that we will sing throughout eternity, and it's a song we will never, that we were never meant to sing alone. What we sing. Not only does scripture address where we sing, how we sing, it also addresses what we should sing. Let's review our passage. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. What did Paul mean when he encouraged us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? No one is completely sure. Uh, Most scholars seem to uh, think that it's encouraging a diversity in songs that we use to praise God. For instance, psalms might be referring to the book of psalms, or also known as the Psalter, hymns to songs of praise that praise Christ, and spiritual songs to more spontaneous expressions. If that's the case, Paul is encouraging us to sing our songs, whether they be short or long, fast or slow, old or new, with gratefulness to God. God is too great and the human experience too complex to think that one kind of music will always best express the dynamics of our relationship with a living God. As I just stated, Paul's reference to singing psalms may very well refer to the Old Testament book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter. The Psalter serves as the Bible's own built-in hymnal and is comprised of 150 songs that are varied and express. Um, so the introduction from the ESV study Bible says that the Psalms express a wide variety of emotions, including love and adoration toward God, sorrow over sin, dependence on God in desperate circumstances, the battle of fear and trust, walking with God even when the way seems dark, thankfulness for God's care, devotion to the word of God, and confidence in the eventual triumph of God's purpose for the world. The Psalms are songs to, to God, about God, are sung in both community with the people of God and to our individual souls to remind us and encourage us in the truth of who God is. The Psalms are our best resource for teaching us what to sing about and how to apply the gospel in every season of life. In addition, the Psalms, the church has been blessed with many gifts, gifted hymn writers throughout the centuries. And some of these include Francis of Azizi, who wrote All Creatures of Our God and King. He wrote that back in 1225. Isaac Watts lived from 1674 to 1748. And his hymns include both Joy to the World and When I Survey the Wonders Cross. Charles Wesley lived from 1707 to 1788. And he wrote almost 9,000 hymns. Some of which we sing are Hark the Herald Angels Sing, And Can It Be, Depth of Mercy, Christ the Lord is risen today, and one that we will be singing um, later on, O 4,000 Tongues to Sing. Augustus Toplady, lived from 1740 to 1778, wrote Rock of Ages. John Newton, who lived from 1725 to 1807, and infamously wrote Amazing Grace in 1779. William Cooper lived from 1731 to 1800, and he wrote There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, and God moves in a mysterious way. Fanny Crosby lived from 1820 to 1950 and wrote nearly 2,000 songs, some of which are Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross, Praise Him, Praise Him, Jesus Our Blessed Redeemer, and Blessed Assurance. Some of our modern hymn writers include Keith and Kristen Getty, Stuart Townden, 
um, Matt Papa, Matt Boswell, Matt Redman, uh, Bob Coughlin, as well as ministries such as City of Light and Sovereign Grace Music. Obviously, there are many more that could be named to which I'm very grateful. I mean, the list of hymns is enormous. Um, so very grateful for how the Lord has blessed the church over the centuries. One more hymn writer that I'd like to mention is Martin Luther. We know that Martin Luther was the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. But did you know that Luther also had a huge impact on writing hymns? One of the hymns that we know is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In fact, Luther's hymns in part also contributed to the success of the Protestant Reformation. Luther has been called the father of congregational song for his contributions to the development of hymnody. He knew that doctrine and theology could be taught by singing hymns and that young people especially would benefit from exposure to wholesome music. Luther's hymnody was the point at which the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers received its most concrete realization in that the Latin chants, psalms, and canticles previously reserved for trained priests and monks to deliver were now transformed into doctrine-infused hymns and prayers for the congregation to sing in their native tongue. There was no need for an earthly intermediary as Christians could in Protestant worship communicate directly to God through song. Luther realized the significant role that music could play in the spiritual growth of the Christian. He declared, Music and notes, which are wonderful gifts and creations of God, do help gain a better understanding of the text, especially when sung by our congregation and when sung earnestly. He also said, We have put music to the living and holy word of God in order to sing, praise, and honor it. We want the beautiful art of music to be properly used to serve her dear creator and his Christians. He is thereby praised and honored, and we are made better and stronger in faith when his holy word is impressed on our hearts by sweet music. Fundamentally, we're to sing about God, revealed in Christ and supremely in his suffering and his glory, since that's what the word of God is, uh, is all about. The word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. Richly brings to mind words like generously, magnificently, fully, thoroughly. Content matters. Historically, the content and diet of songs that were sung in churches were determined by various denominational hymn committees that were approved and published by various different hymns. And I've got a variety up here. You're welcome to come look at these, but I'd ask that you not touch them because um, I do have some... Very, uh, my oldest hymnal, hymnal appears from 1895. Um, so, and they extend up. And I've got a list here that describes the history of the hymns and hymnals. Um, but they're there. But anyway, um, the diet of hymns typically was determined by denominational hymn committees that approved and published the various hymnals. This began to change with the rise of the music recording industry, where songs were produced and recorded in a greater, at a greater speed than what could be published in hymnals. And this chasm became even more apparent with the introduction of the Internet, which now allows for immediate access to seemingly endless supply of songs and hymns. And in many respects, that can be helpful. However, it can be a very dangerous thing. It has been said, show me a church's songs, and I will show you their theology. If the word of Christ is going to dwell in us richly, 
We need songs that explain, clarify, and expound on what God's word says. We need songs that have substantive, theologically rich, biblically faithful lyrics. Tragically, many of the contemporary songs that are written for and sung in churches today do not fulfill this description. If we only have space to sing a few songs on Sunday, we need to make the time really count to sing the best songs we can find. Why would we want to do anything less? We should be picky. The songs we sing should not brush along the surface or pluck phrases out of context or focus exclusively on ourselves or describe Jesus in a way his word does not, or even worse, to speak in contradiction to his word. If our songs are not giving us a balanced, rich, nutritious diet, we will not be, spiritually, we will not be a spiritually healthy people. So do our songs present a veneer of happiness rather than a robust joy in the midst of pain? Are the fountains we point to as we sing deep enough, are they deep enough to meet the thirst that the trials of life give us? If not, then our diet is impoverished. Our words are too small. A consistent diet of shallow, subjective worship songs tends to produce shallow and subjective Christians. Again, what we sing matters. Vibrant singing enables us to combine truth about God seamlessly seamlessly with passion for God, doctrine and devotion, mind and heart. Songs that serve the church well are songs in which every part of the lyric link together to bring a wonderful, thoughtful, deep expression of scripture to every singer. If you're singing the songs as a member of the Assembly of the Saints, then don't just sing, think. So here are some questions to help us in that process. What are you singing? How does it point you to Jesus as he reveals himself in his word? What truths are being laid on your heart? And how is singing being used to lay them on the hearts of those around you? Which lines of the lyrics flood you with joy because they move you to consider Christ afresh? And how will you sing them to others and back to yourself this week? Well, now that we've considered what Colossians 3.16 tells us, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one 